Conrad, Conrad Ford, uh, good to have you with us today. Um, how are you doing? I'm good, I'm good. Uh, it's Monday, uh, which uh, usually is a good day for me because I'm rested. Yeah, well, do you know what? I mean, actually, as someone that's built a very successful startup as you have, I'm sure you're no stranger to working weekends. I, I would have thought that actually um, Saturday, Sunday, Monday are all just really the same for you. Well, you know, what? I've always tried to keep Saturday um, sacred because um, Saturday is like the one day where I just need to recover. Um, whereas, yeah, some Sunday evenings tends to be my my, my working slot at the weekends, um, uh, unfortunately. But uh, I think it's quite useful to just sort of delve into your emails, check the things you didn't get around to, uh, get your head around your diary ahead. So, yeah, but generally speaking, I tend to be someone who works very late during the week. It's, it's, it's my uh, modus operandi. But even when you started, even when you started uh, funding options and... You just, were you not working like seven days a week, every second, every hour that you could? You know, I, I know some people who have the ability to do that. Um, uh, I envy them. Well, I don't, actually, I don't envy them. Um, but there are some people who can do the kind of like, you know, 80, 90 hour weeks, week in, week out, and keep the kind of very high level of productivity. Uh, in fact, my current boss is one of them. Um, but the reality is I'm one of those people where if I try and do, I mean, I can do it for two or three weeks at a time. So if there's a crisis, a fundraise, whatever, uh, but in the end, right, it, I just degrade. I mean, it's a bit like a Formula One car, right? You know, you can run it at full power um, in the last few laps of the race, but if you do that for the whole race, then it's probably going to collapse the engine. I'm, I'm, I'm one of those, but so, yeah, I mean, I've certainly done my fair share of late ones. And actually, I think, you know, one of the worst things about being a founder is very often you're on your own. You know, I used to be in the office, this is pre-COVID. Quite often in the office doing something really dull like the year-end accounts or something at midnight with the rest of the team having left four hours ago that's that's quite a dark place to be in which is actually kind of what i wanted to speak to you about um so as you know like with rayon we, we like we run rayon startup academy uh one of the talks i did at ucl and, and i'm actually doing for um for the founders on rayon is the reality of building a startup i definitely think Hollywood has a lot to answer for and has just like romanticized what it means to actually build a company. There's no theme music in the background. There's no one cheering you on. Um, there's not as many witty lines um, as, as you know, would be portrayed. It, it can be a very like dark and lonely place. And for the most part it is. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I was going to say, I mean, in terms of your own story, I mean, how did you get started and why did you start building a company? Yeah, so I, I, I'm only half joking when I say it was my midlife crisis to found a business. So I'd, um, so, so what is my background? I'd spent five years after university not having got a proper job uh, or, or a permanent job. Um, so I, I spent a lot <clears> of my time traveling. I, I, was, I was working as well, but I was traveling. Um, and I got sat down by a fierce auntie um, when I was in my late 20s and get told I need to get a qualification. So I, I went into one of the big banks and I started studying to be an accountant. I am believe it or not an accountant. Um, and I was, so I kind of drifted into, the, into that career. Um, and then as is often the case, um, you know, a good uh, 10 years later or more, in fact, 15 years later, I was still working in a big bank, albeit doing a fairly interesting job. So, um, and I'd always assumed I would do something interesting with my life or do something with my life. I think it's probably a better way of putting it. So I think, you know, we're, we're talking about kind of mid to late thirties here uh, and I hadn't done something with my life. And I think that was a key driver for me to, to join, uh, to, to found funding options, the start, the startup I founded. 
But the uh, I think there's an element in my personality, and I suspect there's there's a bit of this in most founders, which is I kind of worry a bit about what how I'll reflect looking back on my life on my, my, my on my deathbed. And actually, if you think about it, it's one of the most dumbest things you could do, right? Um, you know, you're going to be in your deathbed for a couple of hours or a couple of days, so you might as well live the 50 years before that in, in a good way and have a good quality of life. 50 years, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but actually, uh, the, the reality is I am one of those people that kind of feels I wanted to make a dent in the universe, and I always had that, right? So so really, for me, um, there was an element of kind of like, you know, I'm going to do it now or never. I felt I had a viable idea. I thought the market conditions were very ripe for the idea. So um, I, I took the plunge, basically. But really, yeah, it, it was basically a, mid, a bit of a midlife crisis and a bit of a sense of purpose, I think, were the two drivers for me. So I think, for, see, for me, I just, I would have happily just been like a really good employee. Um, I think that the reality of being an employee is that the more you do it, the more conscientious you are, the more like your boss is just going to take advantage. Um, like there's no, there's no winning, right. In, in, in that regard, um, unless you get super lucky and you work for one of the few companies where the founders and the CEO, like really do actually value the people and care about the people. Um, and that's not to say that I worked for a particularly like, bad company or anything like that. I worked for a phenomenal company that, you know, did a lot for their employees. And I certainly learned a lot, uh, but it's just, there's a, a harshness and a reality to, to, to business. Um, but I mean, fr from your perspective, was there no aspect where you thought, actually, you know, I'm almost like, I don't know what to do. So I'm going to just do something myself. Like, uh, I don't think so. I think for me, the decision to found the company then led to me starting to think about what company to found. Um, because right. I think many of the great founder stories tend to start with somebody who, you know who sort of had a eureka moment. And I think the, um, the the famous founder story. I'm not even sure it's true, but it's the official founder story is actually Uber. Um, so the founder of Uber was came out of a party at two in the morning. It was raining. Um, trying to get a cab and of course there's no cabs around at two and every cab that was around has already got somebody and suddenly just thought why can't I just press a button on my phone and it arrives at the door um, and why do I have to come and stand on the street so that's the famous founder story that kind of eureka moment but actually I was the other way around I kind of made the decision I wanted to start a business um, uh, and then started searching for the idea um, so um, I'm not sure how common that is I mean the observation I'd make is now that I've actually done it uh, and actually being through the journey, I have a, a new thesis of what the best way to start a company is. And the best way to start a company is something I've seen quite a lot, particularly around serial founders. In other words, they've learned this the hard way. Actually, can I interrupt you before you tell us what it is? Because I'm curious, to look up, rather, I, rather than look like I'm blagging it, I think the reason I started a company is because I think I was just pissed off with what I was seeing um, in terms of like the trajectory of like, the jobs market, the world, you know, governments, I feel it's more like, actually, like, I'd rather not have to do this, but I'd rather chill. But um, yeah, I, I just felt that actually it was, it was something worth I, that I really believed in. Sorry, go on. I, I, I just want to say that before you actually throw it out there. So yeah, well, I think one of the things I've observed is that um, it's possible to start a company and start a very big company, but basically effectively as a consultant. Um, so something I've seen again and again, particularly from serial founders is they are a specialist in marketing or they're a specialist in, in product development, whatever it may be. 
and they go and basically market themselves out on you know thousand pounds a day two thousand pounds a day whatever it may be but the key point is that clients ask for the same thing again and again and eventually they productize that thing so uh, and actually i was i was actually in silicon roundabouts um so london's famous tech center right at the start i want to be clear i wasn't part of the cool community but i happened to be there and actually working with some of the original companies the, the og companies that became silicon roundabout um and the common theme they all had was that they were specialist agencies and they they specialize in a very particular thing whether it's you know web research users user design and what they've done is basically figured out the clients kept asking for the same thing. So they put a name on it and basically started selling it. And that was the that, that was kind of the genesis of stuff becoming SaaS products rather than consultancies and, and agencies. Um, so if I did it again, I'd probably try and find that kind of you know way into the market where you can support yourself, you can test, you can do customer development, you can figure out what customers need, what the market needs, and then productize it and create a great company. And um, rather than take the really big bet of actually just leaping into the unknown, um, uh, which is a huge financial and personal bet as well. But you think that's the best reason to start a company? Just because like, almost like a natural, like an organic progression from like consultancy and agency. So only think, what are you trying to do when you found a company? You're trying to solve a customer need, right? And that's, that, you know, that's, that's kind of lean startup 101. And a customer need, generally speaking, means that's something that's the world needs. Now, you may, of course, create a product that the customers need, but the world certainly doesn't need. So again, you know, it's something that destroys the environment is a good example, right? But fundamentally, right, um, I don't, you know, on the Venn diagram of what's good for you as a founder and what's good for the world, I think there tends to be a lot of crossover. And actually, Fundy Options is a very good example. So for those that don't know, Fundy Options set out to solve the problem that SMEs in the UK couldn't get finance from the big banks. Uh, and that's a kind of ongoing um, political and press issue. But the time I found that it was the absolute peak of that which is just after the global financial crisis, a couple of years after the global financial crisis, it was chronically hard for an SME in the UK to get a loan from a big bank because the big banks were basically- it is. Yeah. Large. Now, now to be clear, right? Um, you know, I don't pretend that I started funding options for altruistic reasons, but the reality is, right? Um, funding options was and remains a, a, a good component of society because who doesn't want, you know, local businesses, independent businesses, who doesn't want those businesses to succeed and thrive and indeed survive uh, as a result of getting finance. So for me, you know, I, I, I would never found a business that I thought was actively bad for the world. Uh, but equally, I don't, I don't think, I, I kind of find a natural happy crossover in the world between what's good for you as the founder and what's good for the world. And, and, and you need you can do the acid test yourself and certainly fund the options is a very good example i you know i, I think you know it's what has funny options done it's founded uh, sorry it's financed many many thousands of uk smes and these are ordinary businesses around the country you know these are these kind of ordinary mom and pop businesses around the country that we all know and love uh, and it's delivered you know approaching a billion pounds of finance to those businesses it has been a real force multiplier in actually helping uk plc and helping uk societies so for me i i, I never saw a conflict no, and you, I don't think you should with something like that. It's it's naturally helping people, and like you say, it's, it's helping those that need it, probably need it the most in some ways. It, but it's still very hard to get financing for like a small, uh, medium-sized company in the UK in general. And I think that that's not unfortunately something that's going to come from the private sector. That's something that's more like the government needs to get their head around. Right? How do they make it? How do they make? Uh, access to capital far easier for companies probably in the way they do with a mortgage you know they'll let you borrow half a million pounds 
uh, on something that will never generate a pound of income, but on something that has real potential, they're not so interested. Um, but I mean, I mean, in terms of that, like, where did you start? Because again, you know, like you say, like, um, like with Uber, that eureka moment, which there's always more to it, right? Um, uh, especially with these American companies that they love a good story. Um, you know, but again, like with Rayon, I, I think it was more like a step by step, like a progression of understanding the problem and being frustrated with uh, lack of solutions. But I mean, like on day one, like where did you start and what did you start with? So, I mean, first and foremost, you know, genesis of the idea. I mean, firstly, I was, I was, I was already an experienced banker by that point. So I understood the kind of concept of finance and, and some of the structural reasons as to why our target customers struggle, um, uh, um, which is a you know, very complex subject one happy to talk about. So I understood the kind of that bit. But, you know, at that point in time, this is around 2010 that I was actively thinking about starting a business. You know, every day the newspapers were talking about the SMEs were on their knees because they couldn't get finance from Bank Australia. So it's, it's almost like, you know, somebody was banging on the door saying, you know, here, here, here's the opportunity. Yeah. So, um, and, and, you know, I've spent quite a lot of time post funding options with early stage founders. And, and one of the, you know, one of the big takeaways I try and really get into their heads. And these, these are businesses, these are people trying to build big businesses, right? You know, you, know, you can go and build a lifestyle business or a co coffee shop or whatever it may be. That's great, right? But I'm talking, I'm talking to people who are trying to build startups, you know, the ones that have got the, yeah. the DNA of a Redwood tree, not of, not of, a, of a conifer. And two things must be true, yeah? It must be a very large market and it must be a broken market, yeah? So let's just unpick that. If it's not a very large market, it can't, it can't support a very large business. And again and again, I say businesses that, you know, they're, they're, they've got huge valuations because the venture capitalist has not figured out the market's very big. But the second one is more nuanced, right? It must be broken because generally speaking, markets already exist, yeah? Um, you know, lending to SMEs has been around for many, many centuries, right? Um, it must be broken because you as a new challenger have almost every single thing stacked against you, yeah? So the incumbents they've got in banking, they've got hundreds of years of history, they've got huge brands, huge customer bases, huge presence distribution. They've got almost every, every item. If you literally stand in their path, they're gonna crush you. It's like an acorn and a steamroller. Um, if it's a broken market where the existing customers are quite unhappy, then you've got a fighting chance of actually carving out a position in the market. And, and one of the common things in sort of startup lands is you must 10x the competition, right? Ten, be 10 times better. You know, Uber is Uber 10 times better than a minicab, who knows? I don't think you really have to 10x, but you probably have to three to five X, yeah? In other words, you must be much, much better than the incumbents. And, the, and for that to be true, the, the market must be broken. Now there's many ways it can be broken, right? So um, look at Wise or used to be TransferWise, which is a, a unicorn international payment startup. The reason their market is broken is because if you try and move money internationally through a big bank, they rip you off. They really do rip you off, yeah. So for them, they can literally 10x the cost. They can make it dramatically cheaper. So you've got to find a way, and you've got to actually believe the incumbents are so bad, yeah, that you actually have a chance. With all the odds stacked against you, they're going to carve out that initial customer base from which you can compete. Um, and again and again, I kind of see this kind of like, it's a big market, but is it really broken? Because you have to have an opportunity to be much better than the incumbents. Yeah, I, th I think, I mean, I don't know, uh, we, we use WISE a lot um, and it definitely makes it far easier. Um, I, th I think the problem is, it's kind of like, you know, you're challenging the status quo. Like, so when we first started, 
I read a report, I think it was in like 2018, that McKinsey said that, you know, the AI hiring market was going to be $2 billion by 2021 and $4 billion by 2024. And I was like, $4 billion globally is tiny. Like they've got it wrong. Sorry, McKinsey. But, you know, I just, I remember reading the report thinking that they've got it way off. That said, when we went to the West Coast, like Jan and I flew out to the West Coast, met with these VCs, and I was telling, you know, you're saying, no, McKinsey have got it wrong. You know, these VCs, these investors don't care. They're not going to invest in you. They're not going to back you. Um, they were like, this is too high risk. And they were right not to invest in us that early on. Um, but I mean, how do you then, at, at that point, you know, you know what's broken. So you've identified the right markets. Um, what are the next steps after finding the problem? and finding it with a market that is either big, like you said, which if I'm honest, I don't like big markets because I think that actually, surely if you're entering a big market, you've got huge competition. Kind of like, you know, if you went into the, the oil and gas sector, right, you're going up against like BP and like Exxon, you know, um, surely you want to find a really small market. Yeah, sorry, don't you want to find a really small market? Okay, so um, that's, that's a very interesting topic. And actually, the, the best book you can read on that is by Peter Thiel, um, who's the founder, of, the actual founder of PayPal, by the way, not, not Elon Musk, who didn't found PayPal. So he wrote an amazing book called Zero to One. And it's about the kind of the, the state, you know, one to 10 is when you scale a business, but zero to one is when you go from nothing to, to a business. And actually, he very, very eloquently describes how it's both of us are right. Yeah, so... Um, Facebook is the, is, is the classic example here. It's the textbook example. Facebook entered an extremely large market, but they entered through an initial small niche. Yeah, so um, you, yes, you need to find an, a, a small niche or a small market to enter, but it's got to have, to build a proper startup, it's got to be big and lend. So for those that don't know, Facebook initially, its target market was Harvard students. Yeah, in fact, Harvard students in one year, technically. And then it was Ivy League students, so you know, top universities in America. And then it was, top universities around the world. So they walked in Oxbridge and then it was universities generally. And then eventually it became what it was in its prime, which is the predominant social network in the world. So a huge market, but an, uh, an entry point where they could actually go and compete. And, and so, uh, you know, I, I want to be clear and fun, fun, the options accidentally went through that trajectory. So funny options target market lending to SMEs in Europe um, has a total market of about half a trillion euros per annum. So it's big, right? Um, but of course, you've got very big banks who play in that to go up against. But the initial early stage customers of funding options were, we used to call them hair on fire customers. These were businesses who had um, pretty much woken up at three in the morning, suddenly realizing they couldn't pay their staff on Wednesday, right? Um, so the traditional options were not there anymore, right? They couldn't go to a bank. It was going to take three months to say no. They needed an answer now. Um, Funding options became very good at helping those clients who really needed help quickly and urgently. Um, and we call them hair on fire because if your hair's on fire, all you care about is putting out your hair. You forget about your family, your mortgage, you forget about everything. Yeah. So their hair on fire was I can't pay my staff on Wednesday. Yeah. And for any business, that's the real situation you don't want to be in. We've all been close or been there. But I've been there. Yeah. I, you know, so I, right. So, um, but you desperately try and avoid that one. So we had our kind of initial niche. And over time, we developed channel brand credibility. You know, we had lots of good logos and a trust pilot, et cetera. Over time, we became a first choice, right? But in the early stages, we had to find that little niche. We kind of found it by accident, by the way. Um, uh, um, 
But yeah, you asked me about, you've got a big market and a big problem. What do you do next? So I can give you two answers. I can give you the right answer and I can give you what I did because <laughs> I did the wrong thing. So, um, so yeah, so, um, yeah, so, so, so let, 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 let's go back. So I'd spent 15 years in banks and quite a lot of that was in strategy. Yeah. Uh, and I'd like to think that's pretty good at strategy. Um, I do strategy in my current role. Um, so I kind of thought, yeah, well, this lean startup, I'm sure if you just come out of university, you know, you're just a kid, you know, I'm sure that's the right thing to do. But I, I know strategy. Yeah. So I know I can do some surveys, desktop research, market sizing. Yeah. So I did all the wrong things, which is basically I spent six to 12 months building a product, um, uh, launched the product and it was the wrong product. I, I did the classic opposite of what you meant to do in the kind of lean, lean startup. So that's what I actually did. What I should have done, yeah, which is probably a more useful answer, um, is there was no reason why I couldn't have launched the business immediately. Um, I didn't need any regulatory permissions for certain activities we were doing. Um, I didn't need a huge amount of capital. I could have come up with a simple website with a cool brand, nice looking website, started actually serving my customers, literally um, uh, um, personally serving them rather than any, any good, great tech, and then started building tech from there. So now the reason I make that distinction is because when you're an angel investor or an early stage VC investor, yeah, you answer those two questions yourself. Is it a big market? Um, and is it a big market and is there a big problem, right? Then you basically, all you then have to validate is, is the person in front of you capable of figuring out a way to take advantage? And the chance, if you're a grown up investor, the chances are the plan they're putting in front of you, the proposition will not work. That's just reality, right? No business plan survives first contact with a customer. But if you find somebody who's sufficiently adaptable and intelligent and actually got enough grit and drive, who's actually going to find a way to actually make the business work, that's how it works. So the reality is the right next step is basically try and launch as quickly as possible. Um, uh, it was always thus, um, and I learned that from the hard way. Uh, but you can save yourself some money and some time by, by reading the Lean Startup, which basically tells you that. You know, I actually made the same mistake, um, which is really annoying because there's so many opportunities now for young founders who want to just go out there and start generating revenue early on. And it's, and it's the best way to actually get like true feedback. If we gave away our product for free, which I've mentioned before on, on, on our podcast, uh, and you don't get any like honest feedback. When you start charging even a pound or a hundred pounds or a thousand pounds, whatever it might be, you know, people complain and you want them to. And the, the amazing thing is now, especially since the pandemic, do you know Zendesk? I do know Zendesk, yeah. I love Zendesk. I love Zendesk. And like, like all these companies like have all like these like opportunities to say, hey, use our product for free for like six months. And, you know, as a young founder now, you could you don't even have to spend any money. You can just start speaking to people on LinkedIn, get their details, whack it into Zendesk and say, hey, look, you know, we're launching this product. We're a new company. Um, is there an opportunity for you, know, you to be one of our founding clients? And what's interesting is you actually find a lot of companies are actually if it's if it's the right price and you're at least heading in the right trajectory, they'll give you a shot. But yeah, I mean, actually, I mean, this kind of comes back to the point I made earlier about um, serial founders often start by advising and consulting, right? Because, you know, you're not going to get paid a thousand pounds a day for something that's not a big problem for a client, probably a client with quite a lot of money. 
Um, so why not go and get paid to figure out how to solve the problem and then productize the solution? Because it's probably a problem that lots of other organizations have as well. So that's kind of the point I'm making, right? Yeah. Um, and, um, you know, obviously it's easy for me to say, right, I could probably go and get a consulting gig like that, but it's less easy if you're earlier in your career. But the fundamental principle applies, right, which is that how do you find a way to figure out a real solution to a big problem? Um, uh, um, uh, if you've got, you know, if, if you've got genuine customer feedback, genuine validation that there's a big problem and that there's actually a potential solution, that's the moment you start building something. And so, um, how long before you started generating like, any revenue? Like, how long before you got your first ever sale? Ooh, I reckon eighteen months. Uh, and and if I if I did it again, yeah, being the, the, the founder I am now, not the one I am then, six weeks. Yeah, well, so ours, ours was like six months, six months like we got our first sale. But but again, we, yeah, that's from idea to actually having our first early, from, okay, we got our first early stage product in September. We got our first sale in October, October 15th, to be precise. So six weeks after having our first like, product, we got the sale and the product sucked, like, to be honest. You know, but the, the customers complained and we were like, hey, what, you know, what do you think we should do to improve it? And actually, rather than um, rather than like get defensive about it, we was like, OK, let's actually like learn from what they're saying. But then how did you how did you survive them for a year and a half? Did you raise a load of money? Yeah, so I'm I'm quite rare and I actually raise money on a business plan. Um, so um, I can't remember how much, but we're probably talking quarter of a million or so so uh, i i i had a fairly detailed business plan but no business and, and i managed to raise money on that so how was i able to do that i was able to do that because i had a network of people who knew me well enough um by the way this isn't you know i've got rich friends or something like that it was it was people who'd been directors on boards that i've been heavily mentored so it was, it was professional connections um, so it, it wasn't nepotism um, so I, I was fortunate. I think that's not an option for most people. Let's be open about that. Um, for most people, um, the best option is to try and bootstrap and actually get that sort of early, you know, uh, uh, there's, a, there's a range of options. And, and actually, by the way, in the first six months of the business, um, I was working full time and I was doing it side of the desk in, in the weekends. Um, so doing a few hours every weekend, sort of building up the business plan and stuff. But I actually managed to raise money on the business plan, which I think is the exception rather than the rule. Yeah, I was going to say that, um, well, again, tried that, didn't work for us. Um, I, th I think when I showed most people our business plan, they thought we were mad. Um, so, yeah, but and also we'd had a couple of worse, like we had like two or three like massive failures beforehand. Have you ever had like a startup failure? No, I haven't. I mean, Fundy Options was my, my first and, and nice. you know, it may, may turn out to be my only um, startup because um, I'm currently a, a wage slaver like the rest of us. Um, but the, um, yeah, I mean, let's be clear, there was two or three occasions where I came really, really close to going under. So, you know, um, what, you was, know, the nearest? Uh, what the was the nearest? The nearest, the nearest was ours. The nearest was ours. Um, so I had to close a fundraise before Christmas. Um, so um, to make payroll before Christmas, and there was, you know, there, there wasn't much money left on the other side of payroll. So um, a partner at a law firm, who was meant to have clocked off for Christmas on Christmas um, uh, um, for Christmas Eve. So in other words, they weren't meant to work Christmas Eve, agreed to come into the office Christmas Eve morning, in other words, desert their family and actually come and close the fundraise. So the goodwill of that one individual basically, frankly, didn't have to do it. Basically, the goodwill of that one individual basically saw us through. Now, 
do I think that we definitely would have gone under probably one of my existing investors would have stepped in and, 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 and filled the gap. But the reality is that was really close. Um, so and I think, you know, this is something you need to understand if you're going to found a company or a high growth company. Right? There will be moments that will shred your nerves. Right? Um, uh, and that, that's saying something. Right. I mean, I'm. I'd like to think I'm a fairly robust individual, right? Um, uh, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm fairly battle-hardened as well. But the reality is, right, you know, something like that, where it's not so much yourself, right? It's the fact you're going to have to walk into the office and go and tell 50 people that they, you're not going to pay them this month and it's all over, right? That, believe you me, weighs on your mind. I've done it. I've done yeah, it. Yeah, and, and yeah, so, uh, you know, the level of resilience. So I think something that's not talked about enough is actually founder mental health um you know i'm again i'm a fairly resilient individual but you know when i look back on some of the times i had i'm pretty sure i was having panic attacks at one point for, for a couple of weeks um didn't recognize it at the time i'm pretty sure that's what i had in retrospect so you know you're putting yourself under enormous pressure as a founder particularly as a sole founder so i was on my own basically I and mean, i was lucky to have a couple of colleagues i could tell the truth to because you know clearly you know you can't just go out and tell the whole business that you know um, uh, we've got two weeks runway left i did did you? Oh, yeah, I did. I, I did. I actually. I always wondered whether it would just implode at that moment. So to talk me through, because I'm quite intrigued about sure. that. Because you know, I, I thought about it a lot. Sure. So, so we had um, a company before Rayon Technologies, and we had like an, an investment, early stage investor, um, would put a shit ton of money in, and it was January, like January 2021, started to see. Um, real like problems in uh, salaries getting paid and like things like money just wasn't there right even though it had been like promised to us and so forth um, and January 24th I kind of I, I said to everyone I said look I'm worried we're not going to make payroll Emma had Emma had a meeting with oh sorry we had a team meeting and Emma asked about it to the investor and said hey look are we going to be all right this month and it was very much a case of uh, yep, everything's fine. And then within 48, you know, but I obviously pushed it. 48 hours later, it was, we haven't got a pot to piss and we've got nothing. We're not going to pay people at the end of the month. So we had people that were meant to be starting. Let me get the dates right. Yeah, we had people that were meant to be starting beginning of February. And I had to, first of all, the first call I made was, look, you're not starting, Right. You can't start like that. That was horrendous because imagine someone that's hands in their notice at their job. They've known me as well, by the way. Um, and I, I went. I went to the whole team. I said, "Look, when you're not going to get paid this month, I said, like, you know, this this could pretty much just be like game over." Um, and they were all quite calm. They were like, "Yeah, you'll work it out. You will work it out." So I got in touch with like Google, anyone that I knew we were going to owe money to. And they were just like, look, we'll, you know, we'll put a deadline like February 26th, February 26th. I stayed in a room without exaggeration in Primrose Hill. I don't think I, I didn't go outside. I did not go outside like um, between probably like mid January and February 26th was the first time I went outside. I cold called like every investor every vc but and i told everyone like you you know you're not going to uh, get paid in fact sorry i had a team meeting and i spoke to i spoke to 10 people individually on like in end of january and i said um you're not going to get paid and i fired them I, I that was i missed out the most important bit i fired them and they all refused to leave 
and the team is still together now they're like no you're going to work it out so they said look don't worry just don't pay us we'll work it out my cto everything he was like don't worry whatever i have to do like you know we'll, we'll do, we're going to stick together so i cold called investors they had been working by this point for like two three weeks i hadn't paid them january none of the bills had been paid got to like the middle of february and i was like we're done for we're completely finished um and then february 25th i'd phoned this guy who i'd spoken to on linkedin like a year before um and he was like look i can't help you he was like an investor he goes i can't help you but here are two numbers so i, I wrote down these two numbers on a receipt and it was but i remember it was, it was really quite dark out it was like february I was like panicking, but I'd also kind of accepted that we were done. And I phoned the first number and it was like some tough Russian VC. Um, and he was basically like, look, you've lost your business. That's it. Deal with it. Move on. And he was he was actually a prick but, uh, about it. Um, and then the last number I phoned, like this like gentle voice, like answered the phone, like very professional um and i i went straight into it i said my name's lawrence cohen blah blah blah. pass me your details um hope you don't mind me phoning um are you okay to speak for a bit and within like three minutes of me telling him the situation he went look i'm not going to invest in your company and i was like okay like i didn't expect anything else he goes why did they stay with you why did the team stay with you and i said honestly they think that i'm going to find a solution they think that you know that we've come too far and actually we're on something really really special um <clears throat> and yeah that they refuse to leave and here's look i'm not going to invest in your business but i'm going to gift you the money wow i'm going to gift you the money and um yeah i'm going to give you the money he was like how much do you need i was like and rather than just go oh my gosh thank you i was like why why would you do that because I was feeling like very defensive. Jan and I had had like two years of hell by this point already. Um, and obviously I thought, A, it sounded like a scam. And B, I thought it could be, if he is genuine, it could be me scamming him. He doesn't know me. So I said, look, why don't you meet with the team tomorrow morning? Like on Zoom, like obviously it was during the pandemic. And if you genuinely believe in what we're doing, then you know, we can like consider it like, you know, and I kind of got off the phone. I was quite shocked. And he messaged me that night going sleep easy. Everything's going to be fine. Don't worry. You know, I'm going to, I'm going to pay all the bills. Right. So that was February 25th, February 26th in the morning, 2021. Um, we were on the call with him like 10 o'clock in the morning or like, uh, maybe it was, yeah, no, I think it was like 10 o'clock. Like he was, he was like a good looking guy, older. I'm sure he'll forgive me for saying like, you know, successful, but had also had failures, um, had been in, well, as he said, like he'd been in my position before. Um, and he was like, you know, the team stayed with you. Like anyone else, they would have just left. So, you know, he spoke to Emma, spoke to Jan, spoke with like uh, the rest of the team at the time. Like, just like, he was like, all right, Lawrence can shut up now. He said enough. And he wanted to speak to them. And um, spoke for an hour. And at the end of it, he was like, okay, I've, I know. I'm comfortable with this. He said, I'm going to give you enough money, like just runway. And he did. Like, he just, like, like enough to get us through like six months. And we kind of just almost, we, we shut down the, the old business. The team stuck together. 
um, I said, like, you know, we, we won't take any salary, made sure that the people that had needed money had the bare minimum. And we just, we just fucking went out there and just fought. Sorry, that's the first time I've ever, like, properly sworn on the podcast. There we go. Um, I was wondering when that was going to happen. But we just, like, went for it. We just went to war. And we just, like, you know, we just watched every penny. We still do. Um, and I've got to say that, yeah, it's just... 12 hours later, like February 26th, we paid Google, we paid all of our bills. Like it would have been off, it would have been game over. And he's just like, American dude. like, isn't that like. It's been like a Christmas, uh, like you can make a Christmas movie out of that. You know what? I've always said if if um, if we pull Rayon off, because obviously we can always still fail, we're still young, um, someone's going to get hold of this story at some point. Like we've like you know you know when you talk about like startup journeys like it's mad but the team I think to go back to your earlier point they I'm not trying to sound like I've made every mistake you can make and I'm not easy to work with I'm I'm horrible at times I'm not that person that is always just nice and friendly you know I'd like to, well I think I think I want what's best for people genuinely and I just think that. Um, yeah, I think the team just believed in me. They believed in what we were doing. They understood that it was important that someone does what we're doing. And we've just, all of us have stuck together. That's amazing. Yeah, I mean, actually, interestingly, the business I founded, Funny Options, had extraordinary retention. So we had three years. This is when we had like well over 50 people, but we had three years. We had zero requested attrition. So nobody left us and, and, uh, um, unless it was something that, you know, we, um, wasn't right for us. Um, there is kind of a, you know, when the, there is kind of a almost like siege, positive siege mentality actually in a great startup, which is that you know people have joined for the right reasons, and, and something we've kind of touched on a bit here is 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 the subject of which is an interesting subject the subject of truth in startups right, so um, you know one of the things I did do by the way in the early stages I used to tell people joining just how bad things were. I would basically say, look, you've currently got a job, yeah, um, uh, and you've been there for three or four years, you're clearly doing okay, you want to join a startup, I currently have enough money to last till Christmas, yeah, now I expect to raise more money, but I can't say with certainty, so if you can't get comfortable with the fact you're joining on a six-month contract, you're probably not ready to join this business, so, and truth matters a lot, right, because when you've been open and upfront with people, then you get the kind of reaction that you're talking about, which is basically people, you know, no, I knew what I was doing, right, and actually, Telling the truth to your team, right? Um, you, it, you almost always underestimate just how much they've grown up and they can take the truth. And also you underestimate the fact that they've probably picked up that things aren't good anyway, right? You can't hide stuff in a startup. So um, there's truth. I think there's another interesting topic, which is, um, and it comes back to the mental health. To build a great startup, you have to fake it till you make it, certainly to, in your external public perception. Um, and well, well, that's kind of the go-to playbook anyway certainly the silicon yeah i don't agree with that and the what you desperately need to find is a small number of people that you can actually tell the truth to yeah and, and when i was helping out other startups when i had to take some time off after finding the options right i remember i had one conversation and, and the, they were telling me you know things weren't going well etc and then they started going through the and, and i said look if everything you've just told me is true right you know you're, you're on the track to build a unicorn you don't need me right but what, what are you not telling me? Because you're going to have to trust somebody, right? I literally said, like, I'm, you know, I've got professional qualifications. You know, if you're worried about confidentiality, take it as read that 
a people aren't very interested anyway but you know just tell me what the real you know tell me how bad things are and then i can help you actually work through what was pretty obvious their question in their mind was basically should they walk away in other words should they stop digging um so but truth is kind of the thing right on the one hand you do have to fake it till you make it and indeed the vc community you know expect you to be killing it and all this stuff you know the, the, the tech bro stuff public thing the one thing you should always avoid is basically don't believe your competitors press releases yeah because you know in its prime uh, under me funny options was pumping out these extraordinary stories about success stories client wins investment wins and if you've been on the other side of the fence if you've been a competitor you would have been just every time you saw one of these it was like a punch in the gut right because we were we were killing it right the reality is right during those times there were a couple of moments where we didn't you know barely knew if we'd survive the year so it's super important, right? Don't judge your competitors through their press releases because your press releases are hardly going to be telling bad news. So uh, yeah, so so, so and, and and I think an interesting dynamic is that a VC probably wants you to you know tell the world you're killing it, but they also want you to be completely upfront and truthful with them when you're in the room one on one, and kind of that dynamic. And and I think too many founders actually go down the kind of self delusion route of just telling themselves. Oh, I just spoke to one this morning. Yeah. He was a good guy, but like honestly, anyway, just yeah, I spoke on this morning. They lied to themselves. I always say, sell the nightmare. Like, you know, like so we had with our investor, he'd had a very, very, very successful business before investing in us. And he was like, sell the dream, sell the dream. I was like, no, sell the nightmare. Because if people can cope with the nightmare, right? They're the people, they're resilient. So when I interview people, even now, I will tell them. Like I will start by just saying, we're probably going to fail. You're, we're probably going to fail. This is probably going to go horrendously wrong. And here's why it's going to go wrong. And I will literally, even on Rayon, on the platform, on our profile, on Rayon, I outline and make sure we update regularly all the problems in our business. These are all the problems we have right now. You know, like we don't have enough engineers. We don't have enough computers. Our computers suck. You know, like everything that could go wrong, I, I make sure that people know about. Because I think for anyone building a startup, you got you mentioned mental health. I don't think most people should build a startup. I think most people should just go and get a job and find someone who is a good guy, who is resilient or or girl. Sorry, got to be careful what I say. Um, but, you know, someone that is resilient and, and can actually found a company, you know. But most people should just go and get a job. It's, it's too hard building a company. And the VT. Yeah, I, think, I think you're right. And, and you know, the um, people who want to join a startup, for example, rather than found one, be really clear in your mind joining an early stage startup is very different from scale up. The early stage startup, you know, there's a lot of crazy, right? You know, there's a roller coaster and you don't get, you're not, it's not as bad as being a founder, but you don't get insulated from the roller coaster. Joining a scale up, unless you know, you're unlucky and we have one of the current market circumstances where, you know, um, the cunning rolls across the board, unfortunately, but a scale up is far less crazy and you get a lot of good things about a startup without necessarily the crazy stuff. But so, at the same time, it's not, you know, um, the highs are high, the highs are not as high and the lows are not as low. And where was your point where like, okay, we've got this, like we're actually, we're, we're going to be, we're going to be as successful as I, I dreamt we were going to be. Um, so I, I had a moment, so I've I, I talked about how I raised money very early and I actually burnt through that money unsuccessfully and had to go back to those investors for, for more money and more time. Um, so that took us, that was a couple of years, which took us about 2015, where I think by that point, they never told me directly, but I kind of sensed pretty strongly that they'd lost faith in, in, in me and all the business at that point in time. 
but actually that was the moment where I knew I was going to, there was a business to be made with, we had this mythical product market fit. When you have product market fit, you know, yeah. The number of people have asked me, is this product market fit? It's like, if you have to ask me, it's not product market fit, right? You know, it's kind of the, in the product market fit is the kind of like, you know, that you, you can't make enough of the widgets, right? Um, so we had product market fit, I knew it. Um, I don't think at that point in time that I would have got the back of my existing investors to really go for it for understandable reasons to be clear, right? Um, because we've had two years of you know, not huge success. I was very lucky because I happened to hit the peak of the market for what was then called AltFi, alternative finance. So if you think fintech as a, as, a, as a discipline has come in waves, wave one was AltFi and the peak of AltFi was about 2015. And that was when I needed to raise meaningful money to go and attack my product market fit. Um, so I was lucky and I managed to raise two million pounds the moment that check, well not check, the moment that money hit the bank account and you were going to make it. Um, uh, um, I just, I had some metrics that kind of told me it was scalable and repeatable um, and that we could certainly build a big business. The only question was how big. So, so that was the moment for me. Um, I and mean, I think an interesting topic is startup to scale up because a startup is different to a scale up. And actually almost everybody who's done the transition for the first time doesn't realize it's time to transition to scale up modes early enough. What's um, the difference then? Well, what, what, what is a scale? You know, a startup is, you can make a very successful startup with a small gang of enthusiastic and smart people. Yeah, um, generous. A scale up is when you kind of need to grow up and you probably need to have, you know, a world-class marketeer and a world-class this and that. So um, you need to specialize, you need to actually build some defensive processes that mean that you kind of protect the foundations of what you've built and, and have some downside protection. You know, in the early stages, you've got nothing to lose where you have a lot to lose in the scale up. So it's a different philosophy. And actually one of the common mistakes, which I, I made too, by the way, is there comes a time where you need to sit down with some of the people who got you where they got, where, where, where you are now and actually say, look, the reality is we've grown up a lot now and you're going to need to have a more junior role in this new organization because you don't have the deep specialist skills and experience of scaling up a business that we need. So um, uh, with me, that probably took place about 18 months too late. Um, my, I brought in a couple of senior leaders from outside and they pretty much staged an intervention. They could pretty much dragged me into the room and said, Conrad, look, you know, you've got some great people, but they're not going to be, the, they're not capable of operating at the level we need at this point in time. Is it because you felt loyal to them? Like, is it just yeah, yeah without with that, you feel loyal and, and you feel loyal, but I think it's more than that, which is basically that you, you know, they got you there. So yes, it's loyalty, but on the other side, it's like, you know, it's a proven formula, but you need a different yeah. formula for the second yeah, stage. Yeah. And actually the interesting, I'd say there's probably half a dozen people that are kind of like with these special individuals who really move the needle and probably, you know, each of them individually saved my ass at some point along the way. Um, you know, there was the one person who suddenly figured out how to sell and just, you know, just you know, we, we'd figured, we hadn't, didn't have any distribution until he figured it out and then we copied what he was doing. That, those kind of move, you know, people had made, made extraordinary progress for the business. When it turned out, when I finally got around to having those conversations belatedly, probably a year too late, only one of them actually left. Yeah. And, and interestingly, Were they angry? It was, a, it was a relief for the, for, for the in right. other words, they'd been the heroes and then suddenly they knew that they weren't, well, they were no longer the heroes, they were struggling, they were letting people down. And it was actually kind of like, you know, that there was a bit of adult supervision coming on board. As long as you make the right choices in terms of your new leadership team, 
So actually, in the end, I thought it would kind of gut the business and lose many of our best people. It didn't actually happen. By the way, people told me it wouldn't happen, right? It's, um, I, I just, you know, I, I, wish, I wish I believed them, basically, but um, I made the move too late, but I got there in the end. Yeah, I, I've got to, got to be honest. I, I do think about that sometimes. I wonder like what it, what it will be like. Like yeah, Emma, Emma and I have had like very open discussions about it, and Emma's like prepared. She she knows that um, probably in the next like year or two, she's going to have to take a like far more junior role. You know, um, yeah. It's just it, it's always I, I guess it's always changing. Um, I think you know Jan was far more. Jan's taken a far bigger hand rather in like the development team, you know. But at some point, I, I think that I think that someone will actually just give him more space, to, like free up and like almost like run the business, like run the whole business. Um, but I mean, did you did you did you handle it well? Like when you think, even though it was eighteen months too late, I mean, like is it something whereby you go actually, but don't worry, we're going to give you more stock options, or is it something like how do you soften the blow with something like that? Because it's a horrible discussion to have, I would imagine. Um, I didn't soften it much, to be honest. In the end, um, I, 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 there, there might have been a bit of you know playing around with compensation packages, etc. But the reality is, no, it was just in the end, right? I knew it had to happen, and I knew I needed to roll the dice. In other words, if all six of them had left, or whatever the number was. Um, then that was the necessary thing I need to do. You know, sometimes sometimes you've got to make difficult calls because the alternative yeah. is far worse. And, um, yeah. you know, the, the business was beginning to creak at the seams because we're growing so quickly, right? So, you know, we had a period where we, you know, exponential is an overused word, but we tripled our revenues one year and then we more than doubled the year after and more than doubled the year after again. So we were genuinely growing exponentially year on year. Um, did you still own a lot of the business at this time? Say again, sorry? What, did you still own a lot of the business? No, I didn't. No, I, I, we, 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 we won't go into that. But in the end, I mean, my okay. shareholding wasn't huge in the business at the end. Okay. Um, so, um, you know, and there's, there's many structural reasons as to why that was. One of them, of course, was the fact that I've raised money on a business plan, right? Um, so in other words, it's the quid pro quo of the fact that you're not um, bootstrapping. But long story short, no, I, um, uh, um, yeah, I'm out. I, I remained a shareholder, but um, the reality is, I wasn't. Um, you, know, it, you know, I wasn't like a majority shareholder in Mark Zuckerberg. Yeah, he, uh, he, he's like I've. Yeah, he, he smashed it. So one thing that I think I've tried to, and I try and encourage fans, and you're going to tell me I'm an idiot, is I just try and encourage them to just go through the hell very early on, even if they have to have one or two phases beforehand, but just don't dilute. Just don't, don't raise money just work out how to get to a revenue without actually raising money because i think that for those that are resilient enough and they're going to make it successful like you want to make sure at the end of the day you're going to get like paid basically you know for for the hell that you go through so i mean, I mean do you have any like regrets or are there, is there anything like with your business when when you look back that you wish you'd have done differently or would have changed um like anything in life, right? You can have a million regrets, or you can have none. Um, I choose to have none. Um, I choose to face the future. So, so let me just unpick that because it sounds like a twee answer, but it's a it's a, it's a well thought through one. I'd like to think. So, um, if I did it again, I would be a dramatically better founder, particularly in the early stages. Yeah, that's just um, I, I say it with absolute confidence. Right? It doesn't mean I'm guaranteed to succeed, but I would be at least ten times a better founder than I was in the early days. So do I have any regrets? The only regret I can possibly have 
is that it wasn't my second time <laughs> and I could do a second time, couldn't I? So, um, so no, I, no, I don't really have any regrets. Um, it was an extraordinary experience. I'm very, very proud of what I built just to be clear. Um, you yeah. know, the, the thing that people always used to say about funny options, whenever we got visitors, no matter where they came from, they always used to talk about the energy in the office. It's like people would walk in and there was a wall of energy and noise. I'm sure it's like you, your, your company as well, right? And the, you know, that just occasionally, right, you'd have a moment of self-awareness. You'd walk into the office, maybe once every three months, and there's suddenly click, all of this is because of me. Yeah, I was the sole founder. The whole thing exists because of me. Um, uh, and all that energy, and, you know, we, we, we developed amazing people. You know, many of the people at Funny Options went to extra onto extraordinary careers. Um, extraordinary successful is all yeah all of that happened because of me so now I don't have any regrets actually um, and actually it's you know it's set me up in good stead for the point in my life I'm at the moment which is basically I have a fairly unique set of skills right um, to paraphrase Liam Neeson so um, there are not that many people who um, have the respectability of being a banker but also have genuinely actually built something yeah. completely new um, so the kind of the balance of the fin and the tech uh, that makes fintech is it's actually quite a rare alchemy, yeah. And I have that alchemy, and 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 not because I've you know complained to read us you know got a scrum certification or something. I've actually done it, yeah. and therefore I've got a fairly unique set of skills. And and you know I, I feel that you know within reason the world is my oyster, which is a nice position to be. And I feel I've got nothing to prove as well, which is a nice situation in life. Must be, and uh, yeah, I mean look. You no, neither have you. It. No, no, but you know what? I, I do to myself. Like I, I really do. I, I do feel that. I think. I think. I'm, I don't. Respectfully, I don't really care what my family or friends. Sorry, actually, I care what my family and friends think in terms of me as a person. But in terms of the business, I, I don't. What the people I feel I need to really like justify everything to is like Jan, Emma, and Tarek, like above anything else. Because I, I think that. I've put them through hell and it can't be for nothing. I really have put them through hell. So, yeah. But look, I mean... You, you know, every single one had a choice and continues to have a no, choice. No, and they say that. Like, we that one too much, right? Yeah, no, no, no. And they say that as well. Like, they always, they remind me of that as well. But, you know, you still, you feel this, like, sense of responsibility. So, yeah. But look, I mean, Conrad, it'd be great to get you guys, uh, to get you, like, more involved with uh, the Startup Academy, with Rayon. And definitely, I'm going to, at some point, I'm going to try and convince you to speak at one of our live events. That's I'll have to speak at one of your live events. That'd be awesome. But look, honestly, thank you so much for your time today. Um, I could easily carry on talking to you all afternoon, but I'm conscious of the time. And uh, yeah, we'll have to pick this up again soon. Fantastic. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks.